So I want to start off by asking you a question. It's not a rhetorical question, but it's also one that I don't want you to just shout out the answer. I want you to really think about this one. So here it is. Do you obey God's commands? Do you seek to do God's will? Is it a part of your daily routine to try to discern what God wants you to do and then go forth and do it? Now, like I said, I don't want you to to jump right out with an answer, but I, I do want you to consider this. And so over the course of this next week, if you would, just put it on your to-do list at the end of the day. Reflect back. How did I do when it came to God's will? Now, you might say, why do you want me to do that at the end of the day as opposed to the beginning of the day? Well, interestingly enough, Jesus had something to say about that. Matthew 21, Jesus tells a parable. He says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which one of the two did what the father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. You see, it's not what you say you're going to do at the beginning of the day that matters. It's what you actually do by the end of the day. Now, I'll give you a head start on how to answer this question by at least sharing with you how I would answer this question. Yes, I do seek to do the will of God to make that a point of my everyday behavior. I do seek to do that until I don't. Because I know that I am residing in this sinful, fallen, material world. And sin lives within me. And so until the day that I am freed of this fleshly body, I will, on a daily basis, in thought, word, and deed, do what I want to do and not the will of God. My prayer is that as I walk daily with the Holy Spirit, with the Lord living in me, that those instances become fewer and fewer. But I know that I will never be free of my sin until I am free of this flesh. So maybe that'll help you as you think about your own answer to the question. But give it thought. Now, as we get into our reading for today, back into our study of Hebrews, What's interesting, and what I've told you about the appeal that the book of Hebrews has to me, is that it continues to reach back into the Old Testament and make clear its relevance to our understanding of who Jesus is and what God's will is for us. And he's done it again. The author of Hebrews has reached back to Psalm 95. And I read for you the opening verses, verses 1 through 7 A, we'll call it. Hebrews, the third chapter, picks up with 7b and carries it on forward. And so this opportunity that was presented as I opened our worship service was 
an invitation to this marvelous, loving, creative, all-powerful God to come before him and to worship him. And frankly, that's a message that has brought appeal, doesn't it? I mean, the idea that you can come and worship God, let's take it a step further. What is revealed in the New Testament is the gospel message. Who wouldn't love to know that our sins have been forgiven and that we can spend eternity in heaven with God? I mean, that message alone should be so inviting to all of us that it draws us to him. If we need to think on a more secular level, consider this. Consider that all of you, and I know this is going to touch really close to home for some of you, but consider that all of you have been diagnosed with a very lethal, slow-moving, and painful form of cancer. You're going to die an agonizing death. But then you go to one doctor, and the doctor says, I happen to know the only cure for this. Who isn't going to say, can I please have that? That is how we should be responding to the gospel. But the reality is that when the doctor says, I have that, he then gives us instructions. It isn't enough to hear that there's a cure. There are things that must be done to implement the cure. If we look back in Hebrews again, therein lies the rub. God had extended an invitation to a generation of Israelites to flee from the oppression of the Egyptians and enter into the promised land. Yeah, there had been some griping and grumbling along the way. They got thirsty and complained and they got hungry and complained and there were other powers that came along, other rulers that got in their way and they complained. But God made a way through all of it and got them to the edge of the promised land. And he says, go, this is yours. I'll handle anything that's a problem in there, but this is for you to take over. And and so Moses sends in 12 spies to observe the land. And here's the fascinating thing. All 12 of them come back and say, this land is exactly what God says it's going to be. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. There is abundance. There is plenty. There's everything we need. Except 10 of them said, oh yeah, there are also giants in the land. And there are fortified cities. And if we go on in there, they're going to kill us. All of us. God had said, go. I got this. And they were afraid of following that simple command. They had not enough faith in God to enter in according to his promise. It did not end well for them. But in that, we see an important lesson for us. It's a lesson that the church fathers understood. It's a lesson that the reformers understood. And that is our understanding of the word faith will determine whether or not it is saving for us. You see, there's this threefold component to faith. There is this object of our faith. What or who do we have faith in? There's then this trust 
in that object to actually do what is said. But then there's this intellectual assent to it, an agreement to live your life according to that which you believe and trust in. I liken it to skydiving. You can have trust in this piece of equipment called a parachute. You can look at it and understand how it deploys and captures wind in it to slow the speed of your descent to something that you can survive. And you can watch other people skydive themselves and be gently carried down to the ground. So you can understand it and you can trust that it works. But if you're not willing to step out of that plane wearing your parachute, you are not a skydiver. It's only until your action brings those other things together that you demonstrate that you have faith. Faith that will save you in that parachute. And for us, our lives are similar. James puts it this way. He says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. We can't simply pay lip service. Now, in Matthew 15, 8 and 9, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 29 when he proclaims, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Now, if you were to go back to Isaiah 29, what you would find is that immediately preceding these verses is a proclamation of devastation and destruction that has come to the Israeli people. And it is with those words that Jesus is saying these people experience devastation because they failed to live out their faith. Their worship was in vain. Now, we in this nation and in this world today, have many problems. But because we're in church, I'm going to highlight two. The first problem we have is that we are largely a biblically illiterate society. That is a problem for us because the knowledge of God's word reveals to us God's will. And if we don't know God's word... There are all sorts of godly-sounding things that can lead us astray. And I'll simply point out that when Jesus was led into the desert to be tempted, Satan comes to him, carries him up to the top of the highest point of the temple, and says, now just cast yourself off, because it says here in God's word that his angels will catch you, so that not one foot of yours will strike upon the stone. 
But Jesus understood that while that was in the Bible, it was out of context. And that you shouldn't put the Lord our God to the test. But Jesus was able to combat because he knew what God's word said. The second problem that we face is that our churches today are filled with wolves in sheep's clothing. There's some really hard stuff in this book. There are some things in this book that I disagree with, that I find offensive. There are things in this book that everybody finds offensive. But we have people leading churches right now who say, well, if you find this to be offensive, don't worry, it was written in a different time and a different culture, and we'll just cast it aside. Thomas Jefferson actually had a Bible, and what he did was he cut out all the parts that he didn't agree with, (laughs) creating his own Bible. But the problem is God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than ours. And because of that, we will all disagree with what is in the Scripture. The question is, what do we do about it? Jesus did not like everything that he was commanded to do. When God said, go to the cross, he did not skip along merrily saying, I can't wait to do this. I want to remind you all that when confronted with the pain that was coming before him, that he knew he was going to live out, he got on his knees and prayed to the extent that it was as if blood was coming out of him. He says, God, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, spare me from it. This was not somebody saying, I rejoice in what is about to take place. But it was one who said, but not my will, but thy will be done. That's the attitude that we are called to have. And it brings to mind what some of you have heard me proclaim before. It's my 11th commandment. I don't mean this in a blasphemous way. I don't mean to suggest that I have the ability to write with my finger on stone tablets, words that should be observed by all of mankind. But if I had that ability, I would simply add this. The 11th commandment, thou shalt not kid thyself. Now that's the King James Version. I like, it just sounds like it ought to be. In but if you want the NIV version, it would just be, don't kid yourself. Are we following God or not? Now, again, my friend James, he puts it this way. He said, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Don't kid yourself, folks. Now, if my words don't do it and if James's words don't do it, maybe you're one of these red-letter Bible readers who holds words proclaimed by Jesus to be at a higher level than other words in God's inspired book. I hope that you're not that way. We can have a conversation about all Scripture being God-breathed. But just if that's the case, you're looking to hear what Jesus has to say about the subject. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. There you have it. 
from the mouth of our Lord. He says, it's not the ones who can parrot what I proclaim, but it's the ones who do it, who demonstrate that they truly love me. Those are the people that my Father is going to come and dwell within. Not simply those who show up, but those who will act in faith. Now, I mentioned earlier Jesus quoting from Isaiah chapter 29. And in the verses preceding his statement, he's talking about devastation and destruction coming upon the Israelites. And then he talks about them being far from him in their worship. But Isaiah chapter 29 doesn't end there. Because as it continues on, it says, but for those who obey, there are blessings to come. There's devastation and disobedience, but out of obedience comes blessings. And this is one of the big themes in the Bible. Blessings and cursings, obedience and disobedience. And the human author of Hebrews, writing to the Hebrews, understood this. Understood that Moses led this generation out of Egypt and brought them to the verge of the promised land where had they obeyed God and gone in, they would have been blessed. But they rebelled and turned and were cursed. This human author of Hebrews understood that the next generation, as they entered into the promised land, They passed by two mountains, and on Mount Ebal, they were told of the curses that would come to them if they disobeyed God's word. But on Mount Gerizim, there were people proclaiming the blessings to them that would come if they obeyed God's word. Blessings and curses, the choice facing them as they entered into the promised land. The human author understood that the Hebrew people 2,000 years ago faced a similar choice. Blessings and curses. Would they hear the promise of God, the promise of a Savior made manifest, incarnate in Jesus, the resurrected Savior? Or would they harden their hearts as so many previous generations had done and find themselves incurring the wrath of God? Now, the Holy Spirit, who is ultimately the author of the book of Hebrews, knew that we would need these words today, 2,000 years later, knowing that we needed to know that the issue really was very simple. Will we do what God has called us to do, or will we reject them? Will we see his promises Will we see his word fulfilled historically and see it living its faith out today and accept it? Or will we turn from it because we find it objectionable? Will it be our will or will it be his will? It's really the same choice that Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden. They were told, you can eat from any tree in here except this one. Don't eat 
the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had an opportunity to obey God's will. And yet when faced with the idea that they might be like gods themselves if they made their own decision and ate from that fruit, they took it and they fell. We face the same choice that that generation of Israelites faced when God presented them with an entrance into the promised land, but they just had to trust him. That the trials and tribulations that they thought laid before them would be dealt with by God. Will we, like them, obey or rebel? The reality is we have this glorious promise before us. That all of our sin and all of our rebellion that would rightly condemn us to an eternal suffering and separation from God could be wiped away as if we had never sinned. But the question is, will we accept God's terms? Will we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ? Or will we rebel? The author of Hebrews put it this way. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't give in to the sinful, rebellious desires of your heart that call you to do your own thing. Church, hear his voice. Soften your hearts. Submit to his will, to his word, to his way, and seek after them. For only then will you be able to enter into his glorious and eternal rest. And as my brother General Hay would say, and that's enough. <laughs> Let us pray.